You're listening to Transplaner RPG, an all-transgender, people-of-color-led, dark-fantasy actual play channel set in an original non-colonial, anti-orientalist multiverse. The Chaos Protocol is our second main campaign and stars Valiant Dorian, Kai Kay, and Sam Starr as players, with C. Thomas as the producer and Connie Chong as the game master. Transplaner RPG is sponsored by Explain Trade, a negotiation skills training consultancy whose director, Dimitri Opines, has asked us to say, and I quote, Please sign up for Transplaner's Patreon, because at some point people will figure out he's a cisgender white guy failing upward, and then he'll be too broke to sponsor us. We love you, Dimitri, and thank you so much for supporting our work. Content warnings for this episode include fantasy violence, body horror, death of loved ones, megalophobia, romance, complex and complicated relationships, ghosts, and choking and asphyxiation. Arc 1, Episode 23, Lacquer's Blood, from Self-Eulogy of a Martyr by Connie Chong. Two days pass. Storm Chaser cuts a path east in pursuit of Armorgen, voltaic runners humming over thick, leafy fronds. The verdancy sprawls before you as far as the eye can see, an ocean of undulating emerald leaves. The air is fresh, the smell of soil is strong. During your journey, you pass several fascinating landmarks. One of these is a faraway reef of tall shank trees, jutting far above the canopy like a quiver full of arrows. The massive branches of these trees bristle with life. Squirrels, birds, insects, wolves. You swear you even see a few people hiding within the shade of ship-sized leaves, peering at your passing vessel through winking telescopes. Another landmark, some thousand feet off, is a maw ship, a verdant sea vessel gone truly wild, abandoned by its crew but not yet claimed by the sea. This one has a shingled, bony hull overgrown with lichen, giving the impression of teeth with bits of spinach wedged between them. Its bite is a low-slung, guttering tread that jerks the ship forward and backward, forward and backward, so it always ends up in the same place. Other landmarks include a copse of flat, prickly cactus pads, each the size of a trampoline. You also see a spongy hill in the near distance that, upon closer inspection, reveals itself to be some gigantic insect's egg sac. And of course, you witness all manner of plants, flowers, and vegetation. Both Abasi and Suhyeon are eager to point out these features of their home to your party. By now, you've been in the Wild Sea for just about two weeks, but you're not even close to plumbing the depths of all that this plane has to offer. The Verdancy is wild and free, colorful and alive. Beautiful, but dangerous. Its inhabitants, the Scions included, are very proud of their home. 
Abasi and Suhyon spend much of their time above deck, falling into an awkward but familiar conversational pattern with each other. Suhyon happily chatters about this plan over here, that landmark over there, this eclectic bit of history, while Abasi brushes Squall and just genially nods along. As for Sing, she busies herself with all manner of tasks. She practices sword forms on the elevated aft, she keeps an eye out upon the manticore's nest, or she helps Abasi steer the ship. One morning, Sing even wakes all of you up by very loudly and very thoroughly mopping the decks. The Chosen One seems rather eager to preoccupy herself. A strong pink fire burns in her eyes. After the events of the Raya, the Chosen One is determined to prove herself. Today is overcast. Thick gray clouds obscure the sun, casting a chill over the surface of the tangle. The temperature is colder than you're used to. Your breath appears in plumes of fog as soon as you wake, and the rest of the day is just as as Storm Chaser continues eastward, the leafy waves around you thicken, forcing the Voltaic Runners to float up, 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 twice as high as normal to accommodate the shifting terrain with its dramatic drops and Herculean climbs. The farther east you travel, the wilder this terrain becomes. Leaves recede from the canopy, giving way to thick, bare, gnarled vines. The chattering of songbirds mutates into the cawing of manticrows. Even the smell of fresh earth becomes brittle, sour. Suhyon chipperly informs your party that you've reached the old growth wood. We pull in on the decks of Storm Chaser to find a sing at the helm, her hands steady on the wheel. Squall is pacing the aft, disturbed by this turbulence, but nevertheless deftly dodging Abasi's attempts to trim his nails. Suhyon sits on a nearby crate, completely unperturbed by the roughness of the seas, as they go on about the archonautical properties of distilled Kreserin to no one in particular. I want to know where Strike Team Nova is as Storm Chaser reaches a more turbulent patch of the Wild Sea, starting with Zynan. The moment that the ship felt different. Zynan at this point has been on Storm Chaser long enough to kind of feel when the Voltaic Runners aren't quite interacting with the Verdancy as well as they usually do. He runs to the bow. I think he wasn't you know, he doesn't live in the Manticrow's Nest, even though he prefers to spend most of the day there. He runs to the bow of the ship just to see what's going on and kind of leans over the edge, knowing full well that, A, there's lightning down there, and B, things do kind of come up as well from the vertency sometimes, so he's kind of, like, cautious to lean over the edge and look. Yeah, so I think you lean over just in time for Storm Chaser to pitch upward a little, so you have to grab onto the railing to steady your footing. And you see all around you, instead of kind of placid, comfortable, rolling hills of green leaves, this part of the Wild Sea, the old growth wood, is all bare roots and tall, jutting 
branches, very few leaves, a lot of thorns, a lot of vines. And the size of these branches and the width and girth of these roots cause huge waves to crest up out of the verdancy, forming these like kind of large undulating hills that Storm Chaser has to struggle a bit to like oh, get to the peak of and then settle back down. Oof, glad I'm not up top. Ugh. And Zynan turns back to just keep an eye on Sing at the helm, but I think is going to make sure that Storm Chaser is weathering this more dense foliage well, because it does seem like if this were a sailing ship on water, he would have a concern about the storm, you know, weathering the sides of the ship. Absolutely. Yeah, the waters, so to speak, are definitely choppier here. And you can hear the runners struggling a little. They're letting out a kind of cranky, rusting hum. Especially as they like crest the top of the higher peaks here. I think as we pan across the prow, we now find Sayer. Where are you upon Storm Chaser during this turbulence? Sayer has been keeping busy just as his sister is. And where he is not pacing around the wires of Storm Chaser, trying to figure out if the bare wires are the reason why the Voltaic runners are struggling, his bright blue eyes flick around to the rigging and how desperate and apart everyone is on this ship and he begins preparing to tie up lifelines on the main rigging of the ship near the mass. Especially when Zynan's kind of walking towards the bow, walking all across the ship, he begins tying one of these lifelines, brings the rope over to Zynan and just says, Zynan, just in case. Oh, thanks. And ties it around your waist, tightens it against the rigging, and then as he jumps over towards the other side of the ship to where the print is sitting on a barrel. A crate. Staring at the uh, wild sea beneath them. Sayer also comes up with a rope, looks at the print and is like, Prin, do want you falling over. And there are all kinds of fascinating magical properties that distilled Kreserin can yield to a patient or a client, depending on how you see it. And oh, thank you, Sayer. What's this for? A lifeline in case we hit a bad patch of wave. May I? Ah, yes. I would try to wait for visions to come and strike me about our potential devastation here upon these choppier waves, but none have come so far, which I'm taking as a positive sign. I'm going to take that as a reassurance as well. As he begins like tying this rope around the print, the word devastation makes his heart sink in his chest. There is a, a caution, a fear with how the waves are choppy, it is cold, there is a bit of fog in the area that is causing his hair on his neck to stand on end. He's waiting for the shoe to drop, but he's uncertain when, and he tightens that lifeline and keeps working. On you tightening the lifeline around Suhyeon's waist, the cinch of that rope and that copper wiring, we pan across this ship to find Lumira. Where are you, and how are you acting in the midst of turbulence? She looks back and goes, they got this, and is probably going back into her room. And I think as the ship starts hitting turbulence, she's walking with 
her regular stature. And as it starts to like wobble, she's like, you hear her boots like, like as she's trying to like get her footing right. And then she finally like rides it for a bit till she's like, okay, I can go back to my regular step now and walks a little bit more before it rocks in another way. And she stumbles again. I need solid ground. This rocking is making me nauseous. And it's like trying her hardest to to get back to her room, to just go through books. <laughs> yeah, I think as soon as you lean against the door and shut it closed, you're like, oh, and there's a moment of pure, undisrupted, normal bliss. And then it hits another patch of turbulence. And I think the books on the shelves in your crew room, like rattle. Also, and a couple Lumira, fall Lumira probably shelf. falls like <laughs> face first into her bed at the same time. Like she gets ready to walk over and it's just like one particularly sharp hump that just <clears throat> and throws her and Bam. she like braces yes. herself on the edge of the bed. And it's just like, I cannot wait to be done with this. There is a familiar shimmering noise like color made into sound as the oracle whisks into existence right by your ear. Hello! Is this a bad time? Well, too bad. Someone's calling you, Lumira. It's Elspeth. Would you like to pick up the phone or should I send her to voicemail again? Answer immediately. Okay. And she immediately back into Lumira's stance. Compose yourself mm-hmm. even though you're a bit green around the gills. I think you like sit up, you straighten your hair, and you look at the oracle. As soon as whoosh, the oracle fans out with a holographic projection of Elspeth's face uh, and body in the middle of your room. And Elspeth is a harpy-like person who resembles a great horned owl. They have light tan skin and these luscious brown feathers that frame her face, her arms, her shoulders, and her lower body with half-developed wings fanning out from underneath their arms. They have these big, thick gold glasses on an intricate chain that makes them look older than they actually are. And you see them clacking wherever they are. It looks like there's a library behind them. You see shelves and the countertop of a circulation desk in front of their uh, body, but they're out of their seat and they're like pacing. They look rather eager and you can hear the clacking of their taloned claws against the floor as soon as you pick up. They turn and they face you through the oracle. Ah, Lumira, so kind of you to finally pick up. My apologies, Elspeth. Oh, no, 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 no apologies. You know how it is when you're out in the field. Well, I wouldn't know. I've never been out in the field, but, but there's no need for you to apologize as long as, of course, you have procured your end of the bargain. I trust that the book... Hold on. Yes? And Lumira will literally pause Elspeth and go over to her door. Lock... Well, first she'll open it, peek out into the hallway, make sure that there's nobody around that's listening. Then we'll quietly close and lock her door again before going back over to Elspeth. Did you literally mute her? Yes! As soon as you unmute her, yeah, yeah, yeah. Locks the door, comes back over, unmute. The door closes, you unmute her, and she has a feathered fingertip propped against her chin, her great horned head cocked to one side in curiosity and an analytical gaze falling upon you. Oh, how very thoughtful of you. Very, very, uh 
precognizant to lock the door and make sure no one can hear us. But still, a deal is a deal. I trust that the book I've provided you with has been most illuminating. Most illuminating in the fact that I have nothing but more questions, but I think you smarmy little shit. You knew exactly that it would intrigue my- Smarmy? Little shit? Ugh. I can't take this flirtation much longer, Limi. But as a fellow student of the magical arts, you and I both know that when studying a new field of research, more questions than answers is a sure sign that you're onto something vital. Exactly. So, you redact- or who knows who redacted, but most of that book was redacted, and I need more. Was not I who redacted those passages by hand, it's simply the clearance level that I provided you with. See, the book, I've done a little bit of, let's say, back-end tweaking to make sure you can even read the book in the first place. And it's going to be a little bit more of a risk on my end to lift a few more of those firewalls on your account. So I'm gonna need a little bit of give, a little bit of back scratched on my account. I've already done what you've asked. What more do you need from me? Have you now? Well, tell me. What have you learned about his magic? And I think Lumira sits back for a second and sits in that. And you can tell behind her eyes, she is fully weighing pros and cons in this instant. She rolls her tongue between her teeth before taking a deep breath and rolling her shoulders back, looking Elspeth directly in the eyes fiercely. It is large and powerful what he wields, but weak to control it at this point. Hmm. We're not sure what exactly it is, but it is destructive. Well, this does corroborate with other reports I've gathered about him from various... Classmates, colleagues, Cove in particular. Mm-hmm. I trust that you've So I'm not up- the only one. <laughs> Darling, are you jealous? Yes. Oh, come, come. Of course I have my feathered fingers in various pies across trans, but you are special, Lumira. You're on his strike team. You have a history with him. You and Singh and him grew up together at the Syndicate in a manner of speaking, so you're able to pry secrets from him. I don't think anyone else can. And I can't exactly ask Singh for help because, well, you know, she's Singh. She would never betray him. Not that what you're doing is a betrayal. It's just, you know... You're analytical, Lumira. You're like me. You know the cost of knowledge. And I think she was absolutely getting ready to rear up and throw another smarky remark right back at her until she hears the sentence. You know the price of the cost of knowledge. And she straightens up. I don't know what you have planned. I just need to know that it will not hurt him. Elsbeth turns her owl-like head in your direction and fixes her gaze piercingly into your eyes and says without wavering, my objective is for the better of us all. You can trust in that. I will trust you as an agent of her will as though I trust my others. 
That's all I could ever ask for. Now, please compile your notes on his magic. Uh, send it to me. A zip file is fine. I prefer PDF, if possible. I also prefer PDF. Purposes. Fine. Yes, PDFs are great. Okay, wonderful. So you'll send that to me. Uh, your Oracle will provide a secure upload link, of course. And in the meantime, for being such a good girl, here you go. Her eyebrows go straight to her forehead at good girl. <laughs> yeah, Elspeth just gives you a little bit of a, uh, an owlish wink uh, and then splays her feathered fingers out, all five of them. And your oracle, which was projecting the hologram, lets out a beep, 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 beep noise. And you feel magic shimmering through this transplanar connection into the Oracle. And where have you stored the Chronergy book? Like, where is it physically in relation to you? The Chronergy book is deep in a cut, I think, that she dug into the wall right beside her bed behind the nightstand. Mm. As long as she's been there for a little bit, it started to gain dust because she hasn't had to go back and look into it. Her eidetic memory, she's memorized that book by line, but also the most important passages have been written in a script that she knows, but doesn't know how she knows it, but it's personal to her. Mm. And it's translated and written into her spell book, the most important passages that she needs to know that's carried on her hip. Absolutely. The crenellation in the wall that you've dug out hums with magical energy. You, as a healer, can feel it pulsing outward, and you just know that whatever Elspeth did to upgrade your clearance level on the back end has unredacted specific chapters in the book that you can now read at your leisure. And Elspeth says as the magical waves start to die down, Ah, what a fruitful collaboration, you and I, Mira. Keep it up and you might be able to plumb archives unknown to anyone else. Always a pleasure doing business with you, Elspeth. And she's reverberating, like shaking. Her leg <laughs> is bouncing. You can kind of hear her heel clicking. This is a good look on you, Lumira. You should keep pursuing it. And it is a business doing pleasure with you as well. Ta-da! And phew, the oracle swirls and phew, her image vanishes. Yeah, I think at the same time, Lumira just like tosses her hand up is like dismissal as it also disappears in the same time. And she beelines directly across into that nook, whips that book out, whips off her boots again and centers herself in the middle of the bed and cracks it open from the beginning, spreads it right across her lap. Mm. And her eyeballs are like, sing! Reading through it again, but also pointedly finding those redacted passages and then reading through it one more time. The old chapters and passages are there intact just as you left them. And there is an entire part that's been unredacted. All of part four, last time you cracked open the chronology tome, had been redacted. Now all of it is there for you to read. And this is what it says. Part four. Slow, fast, forward. Now that I've recorded what Chronergy can't do, or rather what it shouldn't do, as well as how to harness the power itself, I should analyze what Chronergy can do. I've identified the three primary specializations that stay consistent across cultures, factions, and even planes. Deceleration, 
or the slowing down of time. And time here is capitalized. Time is always capitalized in this book. Acceleration, or the speeding up of time. And vaulting, or fast forwarding through time. Deceleration is the easiest specialization to grasp, but has a nigh-infinite ceiling that very few time mages are able to reach. When a chronergist decelerates, they create a bubble of magic known as a liminal. And liminal here is capitalized. Or a local pocket of mage-controlled time. Her eyeballs are fucking saucers that take up half of her face as soon as she reads the word liminal. Mm-hmm. The drifter's words reverberate in your head. Liminal. The passage goes on to say, Time moves more slowly inside a decelerated liminal than outside of it. The liminal's qualities, such as its size, shape, factor and duration hinge on the chronologist's skill and the stability of the magic in the environment around them. Some chronologists can exempt themselves from the effects of a decelerated liminal, but accomplishing this stably and consistently takes years of practice. Acceleration is an intermediate specialization. I attempted it for the first time redacted. When a mage speeds up time, they create an accelerated liminal where time moves more quickly. There are many practical applications to acceleration, such as expediting organic growth, increasing one's own reaction time, or inflicting harm on an opponent by rapidly aging an aspect of their biology. Her mouth drops. Like, gen- like, it's almost comical. Like, it's like the drops to the floor and her tongue rolls out like six feet. That's her. And I think, I think that makes her close the book. Mm. I think reading that makes her genuinely shut the book and sit it back in its spot for a second. And she just has to sit there in it for a little bit she sits there for a bit before it's almost like you are reading something that is so fascinating but also is almost like I don't want to say breaking your heart but it's like also like world changing I guess at the same time that you have to allow yourself to sit and process it And so she sits there and processes for a bit of time before that antsiness of more starts to kick in and it starts to to dig at her and is like, okay, so you understand this part. What's next? And she then kind of like reaches back and grabs the book out of its spot and continues reading further past that. The passage goes on to say, The third and most advanced specialization is vaulting, or leaping forward through time. I've seen the effects of vaulting firsthand, and am uninterested in practicing it myself, though it behooves the academic in me to catalog its properties regardless. A chronergist who vaults vanishes from the present realm and instantaneously appears at some point in the future, depending on the distance they were attempting to travel. From their point of view, no time has passed at all, but the world around them has aged, 
From everyone else's point of view, they simply vanish from existence until the years catch up. Vaulting is a one-way ticket. You can't go back. Once you offer up those seconds, minutes, hours, years to oblivion, they're gone. You can't get them back, even if you tried the dangerous task of going back in time. Is oblivion capitalized? It sure is. And that's where the passage ends. Chapter three is still redacted. I think when she sees that, her eyes burst right back over to oblivion for a second. And I think she reads through that passage again of vaulting. And it absolutely blows her mind. This has to be. And then she thinks of her time in the liminal with the drifter. Maybe there's more credence to this than she initially thought. No wonder fate forbids this. This is dangerous work. Zynan, above deck, leaning against the banister with Sayer's safety harness tied around your waist. The waves only get choppier and choppier as you progress deeper and deeper into old growth wood. And as the turbulence increases, the pure diamond pendant hanging from your outfit begins to glow and shine. I think it takes a moment. Zainan is used to a little bit of peripheral glow, but the moment that he realizes that it's not just from the markings on his face, the glowing from his eyes, and he looks down and he kind of looks at the the stone. What, why is it glowing? <laughs> it's because Morn wants to come out. The glowing flares, dies down, flares, dies down like the spirit wolf is trying to summon himself. I think Zynan kind of connects with that and thinks about seeing a raptor nudging a gate and nudging a gate and nudging a gate and it finally sinks in and he wills Morn onto the deck beside him. There is an expulsion of ghostly white light and then Morn is on the bow spirit, perched upon it with ghostly translucent paws, that darker spot of their nose sniffing toward the east, eagerly, uh, claws scrabbling against wood, but not leaving a single mark. Before your very eyes, without even waiting for your response or a command or anything, Morn bounds to the very tip of the bow spirit and like stretches his chest forward as far as it can go without toppling over, starts sniffing really intensely, and then starts barking. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And Zynan is actually going to try and get up on the bow spirit? But with the with the rope tied, <laughs> yeah, like feeling okay. a little bit secure about trying this. Okay, I'm gonna need a roll for that to see if you like slip over or not. I think the edge that makes sense is grace mm -hmm. or iron or teeth. I'll take grace. Grace makes sense. The skill would probably be vault, mm -hmm. maybe wave walk. Definitely not wave walk. Vault is great. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Make that roll. A six. That's excellent. That's a full triumph. Yes. What does it look like as you sidle your way up the prow toward Morn? I think thinking about 
what it's like to kind of jump over uh, ranch fencing and things like that. He suddenly is back in his element thinking, oh, animals and ships and things like that. They're all kind of the same thing. And he just very easily jumps over it like he's vaulting over a fence and pulls himself up. And he grabs onto just a piece of the ship that is not quite at the right height to actually be a handrail, but it's there enough and he's certain enough even as another roll of the ship comes over, he uh, keeps his legs a little bit fluid and moves with the ship, even though Morn is not physically on it. He's like, okay, don't fall fall down, please. <laughs> yeah, Morn is still perched at the very top point of the bow spear and barking, like barking his head off at this point. Arf, 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 very insistently at something deeper within the old growth wood. And as you've clambered on top of the base of the prow, Sing tilts her head forward toward where you are, eyes going wide and shouts across the deck at you. Uh, Zainan, what are you doing? Hold on, hold on. What is it? Morn. And Zainan, you recognize this body language, the body language of an animal that's smelled something. Something out there. And is now whimpering. Morn wants to get to whatever he's huh. smelling. All right. Uh, Sing, where's a bossy? Uh, a bossy's by the aft. A bossy! And a bossy who's still trying desperately to clip Squall's nails pauses, and the Triforodon yanks its claw away and like very eagerly trots off to the side. Uh, damn it! Yeah, what is it? What's up? Zainan, you should not be up there. I'm all right. And he rocks kind of uneasily up there while he says that. Can you take the helm? Sing, will you come with me? Yeah, sure I can. But be careful, okay? If you fall down from the prow, you're gonna go under and the ship's gonna... Well, you don't want to be underneath the runners when they're going. Let me tell you that. They'll burn you right up. Thanks. And he starts to slowly ease off, but kind of keeps his eyes on Morn. As you start to ease off, but continue to keep your eyes on the ghost pinwolf, Abasi starts to swap places with Sing. Sing lets Abasi take the helm and starts to walk over to where you are. Sayer, you're also above deck. I am, and as soon as this movement happens, Sayer moves back to the main frame of the rigging and loosens the lifeline a little bit so uh, Zainan and Sing have more space to move further up. So whatever they're looking across the ship, they're able to without falling into the runners. You could see say when when Abasi makes that comment about the Voltaic runners, his eyes go wide and he quickly tightens the rope. And not only does he tighten it, he stands like a guard dog by the ropes and holds them himself, mm. keeping them taut against his, his fists. And he just looks ahead, looking at Zainan and saying, waiting for whatever comes next. Yeah, you stand there like an anchor, bracing your teammates in case they were to catastrophically go overboard. Sing rushes up next to where you are, Zaina, now leaning against the banister with that ghost wolf at the very top of the bow spirit. What's going on, Zaina? What is Morn barking about? Is everything okay? He thinks there's something out there that's worth looking at. And Morn leaps off of the bow spirit and onto the canopy. And we see this ghost wolf land with a kind of like translucent thud with its spirity, ghostly paws scrabbling against like a large street-wide piece of root. And he starts to just book it. 
He like vaults forward, leaping with grace and agility from leaf to leaf, root to root, branch to branch, going deeper and deeper into the old growth wood toward, I think, a copse of tangled roots that are definitely too thick for a storm chaser to traverse. Yes, Lumira. I think before Morn jumps overboard, Lumira is making her way up onto the deck and is just like, Pop, pop, I can hear your dog all the way in the bottom of the ship. What? And right as she says that, that's when Morn jumps overboard. What the? Whoa, 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 whoa. I'll rush over to the side of the deck. And Zaynan whistles really high down to Morn, trying to get his attention. Abasi, is that is that weird other thing? Not your bird friend. You showed me that weird thing you said you could jump off the ship with. The Outrider. Yeah. Does that work? It should. Yeah. Uh, the queen mentioned that it was stored inside the prow, actually. Is your wolf okay? Is he? He's still going. That's what I'm going to find out right now. Sing turns to you and without missing a beat says, I'm coming with you. Sing is... I'd hope you say that. And Zaynan just runs off towards the, the bow. Yeah. Sing pauses for a second looking at you, Lumira, and has a very serious, very determined look on her face. It's a look that you know she's not gonna divert from the course that she's set herself upon. I'm going to be okay, Lumira, but I, I have to do this. I think... I think I have to do this. You know you don't have to prove yourself to anyone, least of all me, right? I appreciate that, Lumi, but this isn't even about proving myself at this point. It's about claiming the destiny that I know I have to claim. And I don't know, something about Morn smelling what's out there, it... Something's tugging at me. I have to go. Be safe. You hear... As the Outrider turns over at the bow... Zaynan already on it, ready to go. Absolutely. So Abasi had run over to the banister by the helm of the ship. And there's kind of a lever underneath where the prow juts out over the sea. And she like grabs onto the lever and cranks it down with a big rusty squeal. And the prow opens up vertically. Like it splits on a hinge that goes all the way down, like cutting a banana lengthwise basically. And as it opens up, we see inside the Outrider. And Abasi yanks on a chain to lower the Outrider to the rustling waves as you hop on it, Zion. And Storm Chaser's Outrider is sleek. It is copper. It is shaped like a sport bike. But instead of wheels, there is a streamlined grid of voltaic runners that lights up one by one, ding, 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 along the undercarriage of the Outrider, casting a neon copper glow over the thrashing leaves. A shell of hardened amber ripples from the steering column, giving this bike a kind of glazed, honeyed look, like a lit firefly caught in amber. As this outrider levitates on top of the undulating roots, you notice that when it's not moving, the amber shell blends in with the colors around it like a shard of glass. This makes the outrider completely translucent and completely camouflaged when it's at rest. You also notice three initials carved into the side of the chassis. H-L-M. And Abasi, as soon as she lowers the chain, says, Great guides! Homergen's mom was more of a baddie than I thought. She definitely had good taste, if nothing else. 
And Zynan looks like he is a kid on Christmas. He is grinning from ear to ear on this thing, just petting the sides, giving a big old grin, like, mm, okay, this, this, we can be friends. <laughs> yeah, Sing also leaps over the edge of the banister, but comes down on those floating pink platforms that she's able to summon and lowers herself on the back of the Outrider, so she's riding behind you. And Suhyeon also rushes up, I think, to the banister where now all of Nova and the Scions are gathered, like peering a bit anxiously over the edge. Oh, oh my, be careful. Get back. I'll be fine. Look, Sayer put a kitty harness around me. I will be okay. It is to make sure that you have something to link to if you were to get thrown from the ship to bring you back to safety. It is not going to save you if you get thrown and flop to the bottom. Please go sit elsewhere. I will be fine, Lumira. I'm not going to stay here forever. I am here to help. Speaking of linking, I can perhaps offer up a psychic chain that can connect the Outrider to Storm Chaser so we don't lose where you are and you don't lose where we are. That could be useful. Sounds good to me. See? It sticks out <laughs> their tongue at you, Lumira. Oh, you are just being way too smarmy for right now. I need silence to concentrate on making the chain. Oh, of course you need silence. <clears throat> <laughs> the prince steps up to the banister, closes their eyes, and puts on a big show of focusing, like lifts up their hands, right? Like wrinkles their brow. And ribboning out of nowhere is a translucent bright blue chain that laces its way down to the back of the outrider and I think coils itself around a handle sticking out. And the chain connects all the way back to the front banister of Storm Chaser itself. There. This should help us keep track of where you are, Zaiden and Sing. Thank you very much, Prin. You are very welcome. We'll be back. Sayer leans over the banister, looking longingly over at Sing and Zaiden, and his head kind of swivels between the both of them, and his eyes betray a boyish eagerness like a child that has been asked to stay at home while the rest go out on a road trip and he like grips the wood and is is looking to sign in i think with guidance for something direction as he kind of like leans forward at you Zainan only looks up to you as he is skimming the whole of nova and the scions and your eagerness is unfortunately missed by Zynan's gaze as he looks to sing and gives her the smile that he is so eager to go on a hunt before he looks towards his quarry, towards Morn, who is running away. And with that, Zynan and sing, they gun the throttle, and the Outrider revs up with a silent of the Voltaic runners underneath it, and it skips with deft adroitness over the tall, lumbering roots and thorns of the old wood. Abasi, upon the deck, runs over to Squall, who has just been doing a celebratory little trot of not having to have his nails clipped, but she swings a leg over his back, hops on, and lets out a huff huff, come on! I'm gonna uh, keep an eye out on the skies for both of you. I think I can maybe see the Outrider. It's a little foggy though, but I'm gonna be up here. 
keeping a lookout, okay? Come on, Squaw! And with a a big flapping of the wings, Squaw leaps into the air and takes off into the atmosphere, hanging a kind of lazy circle over Storm Chaser before flying farther out to a company where the Outrider's also going off to. As we pan back down to Storm Chaser, we find Lumira, Seir, and Suhyun left alone by the Helmside Bannister. Suhyun, I think, takes a beat after creating the psychic link, looks at you, Lumira, looks at Seir, and says, Well, I suppose it's just the three of us now? I guess so it is. And I think the rope that the outrider was attached to that was like keeping it kind of docked to the boat Lumira grabs it wraps it around the banister a couple of times before stretching it out and then going to one of the center masts and then wrapping it around it again tugging it tight kind of like holding on to it giving it like and it's like well if it's just us I guess we have to work together then You'll have to pardon me if I can't lend too much of my ability to help here. I do have to maintain focus on the chain. I would rather you do that, please. Sukyeon gives a very curt, agreeable nod and turns their focus on the chain, placing their hands on the banister and closing their eyes in focus. Sayer sighs a little bit as he feels this tension finally settle in his bright blue eyes flick over to Lumira every few seconds. And what he does and attempt to is surreptitiously go over to the main mast rigging, pull over two ropes, one of which is Prince. And as he walks over towards the print, tightens it even further to make sure that the print is secure because they are only connection to the outrider. And then he moseys his way to the mirror and he stands a couple feet from you as he like holds this rope in his hands and there's a heavy silence before finally his voice croaks from deep within his chest and lower down his throat lifeline the sea is still extremely turbulent can't have you falling out Much appreciated. And I think Lumira has like one foot on the center mass and is like pulling it taut and is just kind of like using her foot as leverage against it. Mm -hmm. Well, don't just stand there. You're stronger than I am. Give me a moment. And he will wrap the lifeline around you, tighten it, and then he stands pretty close to you. I think his chest and his shoulder are inches away from yours and you hear that deep breath as he exhales and he tightens it holds it taut and he says let me know if you need more room to get to the engine or something but i think this will do you a little more room please and i think she's kind of stuck in that for a second it's just like when she feels your breath on her neck she's like there is a job to do. Please give me more space. Yes, ma'am. And then he'll he'll loosen the rope a little bit and then tighten it one more time before he kind of like stands there really awkwardly. Uh, color washes over his face. I'll deal with the anchor so we don't keep moving. 
and he will scurry towards where the machinery for the anchor is. Not press the button again. He has not learned. Lifts the anchor off of the rack and chucks it down. There is a button, Seer. It's easier this way. I can see where it falls. And then... As the anchor falls, it crashes very noisily into the foliage. The first few flakes of some, is it snow? Also start drifting from the overcast sky around you. These little light flakes just start falling. But Lumira, Sayer's back muscles were uh, heaving very distractingly as he had lifted that anchor and thrown it overboard. And Sayer, that anchor was really fucking heavy. It was, and I did not warm up. There's definitely like a, a, a loud, sharp pain right in his shoulder blade, but he's trying to play it really cool because he knows that Lumira is watching and he needs to do a good job because it's just the two of them and the print, but the print doesn't really count right now because they're just doing their own thing. So it's just the two of us. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. The dust uh, or snow or white flakes or bone meal, whatever it is that continues falling from the sky starts to thicken a little. And as we follow the hypnotic pattern of these flakes coming down, we cut now to Zynan. Zynan, the outrider is cutting a silent path through this tangled foliage with deftness and speed. It's riding somewhere between a raptor and a sport bike. It's all teeming silent muscle and agility. The only noise it makes is a quiet, barely perceptible humming as it levitates 12 inches off the surface of the coruscating vines, thorns, and roots of the tangle. You ride with Sing in the back, and the shadow of Squall occasionally falls over the two of you like the silhouette of a massive bird of prey before circling back toward the ship. Morn, your spirit wolf, you can see them several dozen feet ahead of you, bounding forward through the tangle with full freedom of movement, phasing through protruding vines and branches, easily matching, if not slightly outpacing, the outrider's speed behind him. And I think within a few moments of disembarking from Storm Chaser, it starts to snow. Well, no, not snow exactly. When it makes contact with the brim of your hat and the tip of your nose and your shoulders, it's not cold. It's just dry. Zynan, how do you drive the Outrider forward as this white substance falls and the roots continue to get thicker and more tumultuous around you? Zynan squints his eyes, looking at this dry snow and looks past the brim of his hat down the roots, trying to keep an eye on the white spectral form weaving in and out of the vines. And he is just going to do what you do when you ride a creature and trust that his hands know where to go as he keeps his eye on Morn and trying to make sure that he can feel the roots and the branches change underneath him. But the most important thing is the heading because if he lose Morn in this, whatever this is, he will lose the ability to help and maybe even lose this remarkable gift. Mm. You can feel Sing holding onto you from behind so she doesn't fall off. And as she's looking around, right, you can hear her antlers whisking in the air behind you. And you can get the sense that she's looking at whatever falling substance this is billowing around the two of you. 
I think... Zainan, I think this is Ash. His chest is tight just from thinking about it. Uh, that would be very bad. (sighs) Yes, yes it would be. But what I said back on the ship is still true. I feel like we have to do this. I feel like I have to do this. When Morn started barking, I felt something... Zainan, I felt something inside me tugging me forward as well. We should hurry! I don't want to breathe more of this in than we have to, and I think this boat's poor for us, but I need to know what Morn has been barking at. Yeah, here. And he pulls off, one-handed, because he's driving a vehicle, pulls off his his long shawl and hands her half of it just to cover her face. Mm. And then he uses his hand that he's used to pull that loose to pull some of it over his mouth as well. As she tightens the fabric around her chin, you can feel her, I think, thrumming with determination behind you. I just... What I said to Lumira wasn't entirely true. Of course I have to prove myself, Zainan. I... I can't lose again. Because I lost against Igni. I lost against that woman. And I'm I'm happy for Sayer, and I'm proud of him. I'm happy that he was able to save the day, oh. but I... I should have been right there next to him, helping him, Sing, standing beside lose. him. I did. She kicked my ass. I couldn't. I faltered. We won. Nova walked away from that fight. The Raya still stands. We did not lose. You got to keep your head in the game. I. You're right, Zainan. I got to keep my head in the game. I think Morn's slowing down. And sure enough. Morn's pace begins to slow down until the Outrider catches up to the Spirit Wolf right next to him, and he comes down to a complete pause, letting out a bark. And the Voltaic runners are idling with this kind of dull electric buzz beside Morn, who is pacing with a ghostly pause around a particularly thorny section of the Tangle. And at just a glance, nothing about this section seems super different at all from the rest of this area of the Verdancy, but Morn is very persistent, is pacing, pacing, sniffing and nosing at this portion of ground. How do you investigate this area? The first thing that Zynan thinks to do is to pull the scarf down from his face and take a nice deep breath through his nose to see if he can smell maybe dirt, ash, Mm. maybe oil. Why don't you make a roll for me? I think that's going to be instinct or tides for the edge. I'll take a tides. Okay. And a sense or a study for the skills, but you can try to sell me on something. I'll take a sense. Let's do it. Oh, thank God. The one dice I couldn't quite see is a six. <laughs> Excellent. That is a triumph. That is a complete success. The first thing you smell is the ash. It tickles your nose as it goes in and it just smells like well nothing really that's the odd thing about this it doesn't even carry the slight smoky quality of ash coming off of a bonfire for instance this ash is just completely scentless it's like it's coming out of nowhere which is both good because it means that it's not coming from like a huge fire somewhere nearby that you haven't seen yet but it's also unnerving because if it's not coming from a fire then where is it coming from The other thing you smell is rich, dark, old, very, very old, Zainan, soil. 
and organic matter, dead leaves, ancient vines thrumming just underneath the surface of the tangle. This place is called the Old Wood for a reason, and that reason's starting to settle in. It's not just that the roots are getting thicker and the vines tangle more, they're getting bigger here, Zainan. That's why there's more turbulence. The waves are growing in size. Each branch, which used to be maybe the girth around of a person's arm, is now so wide around that it's almost the size of your outrider, some of them. Zainan looks down over the edge just to kind of see for his own eyes the darkness that he knows is down there, just to take in how far that smell is traveling. He wants to look around and kind of see it, but he is also going to step towards this tangle carefully. Do you get off of the Outrider and wave walk yourself carefully forward? Yes, he is going to attempt to kind of trust and hold a hand towards Morn and sort of just breathe in the world and try and feel what is there because he doesn't think that an outrider is going to be able to pull away a tangle of vines definitely not you'd have to go down there yourself physically and leave the outrider up here hitched Singh also disembarks from the outrider and approaches the section that Morn is nosing at. She's peering down at the gaps between the leaves between thorns and vines, and all you can really see are mottled, coruscating shadows that go down for as long as you can perceive before more vines cut in and block your view. Zainan, I think we have to go down there. Yeah, I think that you might be right. All right. Lead the way? Let's go. All right. As you and Sing enter the first layer of the canopy, carefully lowering yourselves between the gaps, lifting fronds out of the way, avoiding thick brambles of thorns, the leaves around you are bright and green, if now lightly dusted with a thin coating of ash. There are vines and branches everywhere. The tangle, as this place is known, is quite aptly named. It is a jumble of leaves, roots, thorns. Some areas of the tangle, as you navigate your way south, are very dense and narrow, with webs of vines forming verdant nets that you have to hack through to progress any deeper. Other areas of the tangle are larger, looser, with branches the size of tree trunks and dangerous gaps that a single slipped foot could cause you to tumble through. Morn also follows you down, continuing to lead the way, sniffing, growling occasionally, letting out low, deep barks other times. And as you continue your descent, the bright green leaves of the tangle start to turn darker. The already dull light from the overcast sky begins to fade. The branches and the roots get thicker, they get hardier, they get thornier, sound starts to muffle, the pungent sour smell of Kreserin grows all around you, and yet Morn continues to bound lower and lower, leaping from branch to branch, phasing through vines and thick walls of leaves and intertwined trunks. Whatever Morn has smelled, it is deeper still. You are now nearing the transition from the tangle into the thrash, the first lower layer of the verdancy that is still somewhat safe-ish for seasoned wild sailors to trawl. As you push 
into the thrash, Zynan. How are you taking in the flora around you? Zynan starts with kind of a wonder. He's really enjoyed all of the life here on the Wild Sea. It is a refreshing change from what he expected to find here, Ash. But as we get deeper and deeper, he goes from kind of wonder to very keen hunter-like instinct taking over, and he keeps his eye on every spot of light, every movement that he can see, and is trying so desperately to see what might be coming next. Mm. Zynan, what you notice, not immediately, but gradually as you go deeper and deeper from the tangle to the thrash, is just how ancient this vegetation is. You can feel it. You've always been attuned to nature. It's not just 300 years. These are not trees that look 300 years old. These are trees that are much older than just three mere paltry centuries. And you think of what the prince said, of how the wild sea came before even Aragonus, how the wild sea was how this place used to be. And you get the feeling that these trees remember their true origin. As you plunge deeper from the thrash into the sink and the drown, the darkness closes in, sweeps us up, and we arrive back on top of Storm Chaser. Seer and Lumira, how's it going? I think Lumira is actively quiet. Like she's focusing on keeping this rope tight and allowing it slack as it gets tighter as they move further out and seep deeper into the verdancy. And she has zero to say. It is just strictly business. It is nothing friendly, nothing even civil. It is just two people working silently, or at least on her part, working together in silence to get this done. Sayer kind of matches that energy. There's several moments throughout the both of them working, where Sayer turns over to Lumira and his his lips part for a moment as he looks to want to say something, but immediately busies himself with the next task. And I think we find him now on the Mentacro's nest, looking up towards where Abasi is circling. How long has it been, Connie, since Zainan and Singh have left? A half hour. I imagine that Sayer in his Sky Warrior training was taught some of the whistles of how the Sky Warriors go on their patrols alongside King Masu and such. So he whistles up towards Abasi for the first rung of 30 minutes that everything is fine. And as he watches Abasi circle with Squall, slides down the ladder of the Manticrow's nest, and looks over towards, I imagine Lumira's back. We're not making eye contact yet, I'm pretty sure. As is um, sitting too, just. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think he like approaches and he stands about three to four feet away from you. And he hesitates and the words choke in his throat until he finally 
clumsily says, Your hair. It's changed. What happened? Excuse me. Not in... Not in a bad way. It's just... It's great since... Raya. Did something happen? <laughs> you say, no, like, not in a bad way, but, like, you say it's great and she still steps back? Like look of offense on her face and I think she just glares at you for a second. The ash falls a little harder. We've all gone through changes, Sayer. And as the ash starts to fall harder, she stops for a second and stands completely still. Her eyes close. Has the temperature changed, Connie? No. It's not. So realistically, there would be no reason for snow to fall. She will lick her finger and stick it up into the air, catch a couple of those flakes that fall out of the ground, and press them to her tongue again. This is ash. It's not snow. Sayer's head whips towards the direction that Zainan and Singh are. And he kind of like leans forward to try and get a look ahead. And he looks towards the mirror and nods and looks up at Abasi and gives another couple of whistles. Probably something to signify get closer to the people who have left us than us. Mm-hmm. I've sent Abasi ahead. Hopefully, she sees something. Hopefully. And she immediately goes right back into working, not acknowledging things at all in the first place. And Sayer looks like he's about to say something one more time. And he says, look, is this, is this what it's going to be like? You are so intent on having conversations at the worst times, Sayer. We don't have to talk about everything, but... You would rather it be in front of the entire crew, like last time? I'm trying not to do that again, Lumira. Much appreciated. The ash falls even harder. Look, what do you want from me? I want to complete our mission safely and get our agents back on board. We will. Then help me. What about this? There is no this, Sayer. I hold no ill will towards you at all. Okay. We are teammates, sometimes teammates, while they may not agree with each other, end up working together to get a common goal completed. So I'm hoping the severity and urgency of which we need to complete this common goal, we can work together and get this completed without any additional, okay? For all of our sakes. You know I'd do anything for the strike team, Mira. Keeps pulling at the rope, giving slack, and going back to pushing and pulling it back. You know, to make matters even worse here, since you are so hellbent on having this conversation, is the fact that you acknowledge the fact that my hair has gotten grayer since we've last spoken, but you still have yet and she pulls the rope a little bit tighter in it you still have yet to acknowledge the fact that you have not apologized to me 
yet for what you said earlier. And don't worry, I don't want your apology. Your sister did it for you. Something on Sayer's side of his head bulges as a vein pops and his brows furrow and his hand grips tightly, I think, on the Manticrow's nest ladder. I didn't ask her to clean my messes for me. I'm trying to fix things, Lumira. And yet she still does, Sayer. Look, I'm trying, Lumira. I'm trying to be better. I'm trying to be a better member of the strike team, a better member, a better teammate, a better friend. I want to be better. I want you to be better too, Sayer. Genuinely, I do. But by the looks of it, what I can see here is there are... And she goes to say something and then bites her tongue. She's still not accepting of it yet, and she's trying to rein her emotions in. We all have things that are beyond our control, Sayer. However, there are some of us that are actively taking the steps to learning about it and acting to control it. Others let it run reckless and hurt the people that care the most about us in the process. I don't... And his... There's something deeper within his chest that breaks and buckles. I don't want to hurt you, Mira. I want to make things right. Please. And I think the please... She softens. And she looks at you. Her eyes are also reflecting that softness that you are giving to her. They're mirrors of that same softness you're reflecting to her in that moment. I just want you to do better, Sayer. Be what I know you can be. Be what I see. It makes it difficult, though. When every step I try, you push back just as hard. So, this is where we stand. Your sister and our lead agent are out there on the Wild Sea right now, and they need our help to make sure that they get back to safety. So, truce for now. Deal? And I think Sayer sees it, finally. The softness, the mirroring, the give. And I think in this moment, he's realized how much he fucked up. How much he has hurt you. How terribly he has hurt you. And his blue striking eyes are no longer piercing. They're a shield. As he steps forward, finally braver, and looks to you, Lumira, and he says, Lumira, what I said, of course I don't mean it. I know I hurt you. I know I fucked up. <laughs> and I know words cannot just take that away, but I... <clears throat> and something coils around Sayer's neck. The tail of something oily and inky wraps around the literal Adam's apple around his neck. 
and the head of a snake goes right up to his left ear, opens its jaw, unhinges its jaw, right near the ear, not like opening. And as the apology is choked out of you before you can speak it, Zion, you and Sing have entered the sink and the drown. Getting here took time. Hours? Minutes? It's so hard to tell. Down here, time collapses. The darkness is ever-present. It is interminable. It is enveloping. A while back, Sing unsheathed her longsword and is now using it as a glowing pink torch to light the way. Morn's ghostly form also sheds a little bit of light, just enough for you to glimpse thick, coagulating shadows. Thorns the size of your forearm. Strange, scuttling animals vanishing from this radius of light just in time to not be seen. You and Sin move slower down here, not because you want to, but because you have to. A single misplaced step could mean a lost foot, a lost limb, a lost life. The last thing you'd want to do down here in the pitch black wood is fall. Zynan, how do you navigate through the lightless sink and drown? Zynan isn't afraid of the night, of the dark. The little bit of light that does show down is like pinpricks of stars. And in that way, it's just like home. And he steps forward slowly and carefully, letting Morn light the way, but also feeling that pull that's always been in him. The next step, the next thing that has to happen, if Singh believes this is the right direction, then he's going to trust in her will and walk forward, <laughs> steady and carefully. You and Sing, step by step, both of your paths lit, not just with the light of her longsword, but with the trust that you hold in fate's will. And you've noticed this a while back, during the thrash, maybe the beginning layers of the sink, but it's ever-present, ever-reminding here. The trees are getting bigger. Everything down here, the deeper you go, Zynan, is getting bigger. You're pretty sure he saw just a flash, couple minutes back, couple feet back, of a titanic praying mantis, several dozen feet into the tangle of leaves to your left, completely still. A statue, almost, with razor-sharp sides, the length of a man's body. Something dark and bloody laid at its feet, and its large, glistening eyes were unmoving as you sing and mourn, walk right past it. Sing, in instinct, had lowered the light of her longsword until only Morn's slight glow lit the path as you walked past this mantis. And Zynan, as you continue to delve deeper, you can feel it. There's something on the edges of your perception, something that you are innately attuned to. There are ghosts down here. Zynan... 
ghosts with names that have not yet been revealed to you, as ever-present as the dark, rich shadows that surround you. They are whispering to you, Zynan. Yes, they are, but it's a soundless, silent whisper pushing against the boundaries not of your ears, not of your mind, but of your soul. These ghosts are saying to you, they are naming you, they are calling you of the howling dust, you of the grave dirt upon boots. They're beckoning you deeper, tread lightly. There are things more ancient than earth that stir under eaves. The pressure is like being choked, but he doesn't let out the yell that starts to percolate. He keeps it trapped, continues to envision the pinpricks of light and the stars and that what is ahead is in her will. It's gotta be because otherwise these voices, these feelings, they're just trapped. Someone's gotta let them go. He just keeps walking. You walk and walk and walk, surrounded by these voiceless whispers, these soundless murmurings, these ghosts with no form or name or light or shape or color or sound or smell or taste, but still with presence, pushing in around your soul. And when you blink, you start to see forms in the shadows, and you're not sure if it's your eyes playing tricks on you or if they are actually here, you see the outline of a familiar person with beautiful flowing robes and hair that goes past their shoulders and just a glimmer of sharp eyes, Azalees. And then you see broad shoulders, the smell of breakfast cooking in this oil, black shadow, Dom. And then you see a whip of a woman as sharp as a tack, a smile like a broken dagger. And then Sing says, I think we're here. And you snap back to the sink in the drown. Morn has stopped moving. He's perched on a branch the size of a city street, and he is barking at a trunk the size of a building. Something is glimmering on the side of this trunk. As you approach, you see that that something is a shard of hardened creserin leaking from an ancient gap in the bark, so ancient that lichen and moss has grown through the crenellation. There's something suspended in this dribbling, hardened shard of amber. An object is trapped within it. As you approach, as you and Sing's eyes land upon that object, both of you see that it is a sigil pinned onto torn cloth. It is an ancient, perfectly preserved, completely unmistakable sigil. It is the emblem of the Transplanar Reification and Nourishment Syndicate's finest strike team, the Twilight Guard. This episode was edited by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our original intro theme music is by Jonathan Charles. Transplanar RPG is supported by our incredible Patreon precepts. Folks pledge to our highest tier on Patreon. A massive thank you to Charles, Cora Eckert, 
Chiacres, Lex Slater, Scruffesis, Hat, Alex, Mark J, Lyle and Peanut, Spencer, Brooke in Seattle, Derek Davidson, Phil, Jordan, Cassidy, and Rose. Pledge to our Patreon today for as little as $3 a month to unlock exclusive news, character sheets, GM notes, and even the chance for your tabletop OC to cameo in our show. Until next time, Transplay Nerds!